0: That chat is brought to you by Walters. While the national season may be winding down, fall sports are just around the corner. Are you looking for a place to host your fantasy football draft with over 30 TVs, free Wi-Fi and buckets of wings and beers? There's no better place to host your draft party than Walters.
1: With plenty of room indoors or outside
2: on the covered patio, contact Brett at waltersdc.com to reserve your space today.
1: the kick in the pitch. vr shoots one toward
2: the gap in left center this one is way back and it is off the top of the wall thomas hands the carom throws toward second close play there and safe is the call and now they're going to call it a home run smith scores vr is waiting to take off his his armor and throw it to first page tony tarasco and now he's going to circle the bases and so now it is seven to three new york Final visit of the year for the Phillies. Final three meetings of the year between the two clubs. And it'll be right-hander Josiah Gray on the mound for the Nationals with a record of 0-1 looking for that first win in a Nationals uniform. It will be his sixth start for the Nationals with K-Bert Ruiz called up from AAA Rochester who came of the deal with Gray from the Dodgers. And they will be the battery tomorrow night here at Nationals Park.
3: He's playing really well down there. Um, we wa- we want to, you know, get him here, get him settled, let him get some of bats down in Rochester. And, uh, you know, Riz and I, we sat around and uh, we feel like he's, you know, he's ready to come up and, and get an opportunity to play up here and, and watch him play. And welcome to Nats Chat
0: for Monday, August 30th, 2021. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast, joined by the mastermind of the Nats Chat podcast, Tim Shovers, as Mark Zuckerman is off for this episode celebrating his son's 10th birthday. We say happy birthday to Brian and we say happy Caber Ruiz Day to everyone listening because that day is coming. We'll get to what happened with the Nationals from an on-the-field standpoint on Sunday coming up in a bit, a 9-4 loss at the New York Mets as the Nats end up dropping two or three in the series. But the headline item from your National Sunday by far is the news, I would say surprising news, that the Nats announced on Sunday morning, Cabert Ruiz is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Ruiz is coming to town. He will be making his Nationals debut Monday night against the Philadelphia Phillies, game one of a three-game series at Nationals Park, a game that just happens to have, as the Nats' starting pitcher, Josiah Gray. This is big news. This is exciting news. I've got a lot to say about it, but Tim, what did you make of this news coming out from the Nats on Sunday morning?
1: I was very surprised by it, Al. I thought maybe that he would come up for the Mets series in D.C. over Labor Day weekend because... Cavalli has another start either Thursday or Friday in Rochester, and I thought, okay, maybe they'll let him work with Cavalli one more time and then bring him up for the doubleheader on Saturday. They jumped the gun a bit, but its I, I really enjoyed the timing of it with Josiah Gray. I think it's a great way to make his debut. And just think, Al, one month ago, late at night, we found out about the Scherzer-Trey Turner deal, and we heard about these two big prospects that the Dodgers were sending over, and then a month later... We get them on the field. I mean, this is, I don't want to say unprecedented, but something like this, a quick turnaround like that and a rebuild, this doesn't happen. And it's really exciting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look at it now, that sell-off, which was a month ago, was eight players for 12 prospects. Cabert Ruiz will make it five of the 12 prospects having already played for the Nats. Ruiz, Josiah Gray, Lane Thomas, Riley Adams, Mason Thompson, five in a month since the sell-off of already made their Nats debuts or are about to make their Nats debuts. I also think there's like a perfect bookend to this because that trade with the Dodgers was officially finalized on July 30th. Cabert Ruiz will be making his Nats debut on August 30th. So that's like, you know, the perfect one-month celebration in terms of the anniversary of that trade. So I think this is so interesting on so many levels. So first of all, we had discussed both on and off the air, to be honest with you, that maybe Caber Ruiz never gets called up to the majors this season because Riley Adams and Tres Barrera had been doing so well, because Cade Cavalli just got promoted to AAA Rochester, there was a feeling that maybe Caber Ruiz just doesn't come up to the majors this season because it really wasn't that necessary. Little did we know he's being summoned to the majors uh, starting uh, Monday. I think you have to acknowledge, too, there is a definite box office reason for this, okay? So the Nats announced that Ruiz will be being called up. It doesn't usually work that way. Okay. Teams don't usually announce we are going to be calling up this guy for the following night's game. The Nats, think about what they did on Sunday morning. They put out there that a roster move was coming. The Nats can't just bump up Caber Ruiz to the majors. The Nats are going to have to make a corresponding roster move. So the Nats played that game on Sunday with probably going through the minds of Tres Pereira and Riley Adams, maybe others, who knows. That one of them may be about to be optioned, which is, I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic. You don't normally see that an organization announcing a call up like that and in some ways sort of putting one or more of their players on the major league roster already on the spot. Obviously, you know, it's hard to ignore the coincidence, right? This is game wood of a homestand. So, you know, you're trying to sell tickets. This is a Josiah Gray game. I think there's symbolism in that. So I think there is a method to this madness here of what the Nats are doing in announcing this move and then executing this move for Monday.
1: Yeah, whoever the odd man out is on the roster, I am sorry, but that's showbiz, baby. I don't know what to say on that front. But in terms of Ruiz getting called up for the homestand, unless he isn't ready yet, then they shouldn't call him up. But it does sound like, based upon all indications, that he is major league ready. And I'm cool with that approach. Listen, there's an entire month left of the season for a team that waved the white flag in late July, you know, so adding another carrot to Nats fans for them to come to the ballpark or watch the games on TV or listen to games on radio. I'm totally cool with it. I like it a lot. adds a lot of excitement heading into a September stretch run for a team that, oh, by the way, is playing better and better the past few weeks. I mean, we might see a team, out in the back half of September that is uh, playing some real competitive ball and ends the season with a nice taste in our mouths before we go into the winter of 2021.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting since the sell-off, the Nationals are losing, okay? They're not winning often, but they're not getting bludgeoned. There's basically only been one blowout loss for the Nats since the sell-off. That was that 12-2 loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park on August 14th. Every other loss since then has been, you know, what you would call like a respectable loss. Now, there have been a bunch of losses. All right. So like this is ultimately kind of loser talk. But the truth is the Nationals got blown out far more often prior to the sell off than the team has since the sell off, which I think is interesting and kind of telling about what the team was prior to trading away all those players. But yeah, I mean, there's a reason that the Nats, didn't promote Caber Ruiz for, say, this three-game series at the Mets, right? They waited until the homestand got going, and that's perfectly fine. You're allowed to do stuff like that. I think this is also a message to really everyone in the organization of, we don't care about, like, if we already have guys at your position at the majors. If you are worthy of being called up, you're going to be called up. Caber Ruiz has been killing it at AAA Rochester. 20 games, he has an OPS of 942 He, within the last week, had back-to-back two home run games. So even though Riley Adams has done really well, even though Tres Pereira, I would argue, has done pretty well, the Nats are like, we don't care. Caber Ruiz is our number one prospect. MLB Pipeline just ranked Caber Ruiz as the number 19 prospect in baseball. The guy is ready for the majors, and so he is being called up to the majors. I think that's a good message to send your organization. We're not going to hold down talent, no matter what the reason.
1: I agree with that. You mentioned that with the with catchers and, and the glut. It does remind me of something to a month ago, Al, where a fair amount of people were tweeting uh, at us, you know, wait, why did they acquire Riley Adams and Ruiz? You know, why do they get so many catchers? To that I say, there's no such thing as too many catchers. I love how it's shaken out and the fact that they're going to either have three catchers or have to send Barrera down. I think that really shows a great place where the organization is at because as you and Mark have talked about, a month and a half ago, The catching situation was a complete desert for the organization, and now there's a bit of a glut.
0: Yeah, it's amazing the turnaround in that regard. Now, you know, whoever gets demoted, and I would think it's Barrera. I don't think it's going to be Adams. Adams has been really good. The rosters expand come September, and it's no longer a 40-man expansion. It's now up to 28, but it could very much be Tres Barrera gets optioned to AAA Rochester and then gets called back up within a day or two, you know? So, like, this isn't, you know, the end of the line for, say, a Tres Barrera. So I think it's worth noting that. But I would think, you know, Kbert Ruiz is being called up. I don't think he's being called up to split time with Riley Adams. Like, I think this may well could be it. Like, we're about to see the start of the k Ruiz era as the Nationals' everyday catcher. And so I think that'll be interesting if you're Davey Martinez. To what extent do you spell k at a catcher? Like, to what extent do we see Riley Adams a catcher? We've already talked multiple times about the potential for Riley Adams to play first base. I don't know if that's something... You necessarily launch into in the final month of the season, although you could. And we have seen the Nats do that in the past, start making positional changes late in regular seasons. We saw this last year with Juan Soto. He ended the season playing right field, off of course, having been the Nats' everyday left fielder for his career. So I wonder about that. I would hate for this to mean that Riley Adams like barely plays down the stretch because he's been a lot of fun to watch. He's done a good job. He deserves to play more. So I just hope they can find some plate appearances for him. But Let's make this clear. Caber Ruiz is the man. He is the number one prospect in the organization. He's ahead of Josiah Gray. He's ahead of Cade Cavalli. Like, this is the guy more than anyone else to be excited about. And he's an everyday player. Like, Gray and Cavalli are exciting, but those are pitchers. They're only impacting your ball club once every five days. Ruiz is a guy potentially every game for the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years could be a franchise catcher. Could be. You know, let's see. But he's got that kind of potential. Which would you rather have?
1: Would you rather have a franchise catcher or a franchise
0: shortstop? Ah, oh boy, I'd love to have both. Right. I guess, though, right. I would say catcher just because it's rare. Like, there are a lot of good shortstops right now. That doesn't mean that's not important, but you can go on and on about all the great shortstops in Major League Baseball right now. There is a real dearth of quality catchers. Like, it's JT, Riomuto, and then who? You know, the list is rather short. You could probably count on one hand the number of, like, really good catchers, like guys who hit well, guys who defend well. So I think the thing that is more of a rarity, I think that's the more valuable commodity. But, look, I am not going to ever say no thank you to a franchise shortstop because that's incredibly valuable as well.
1: Yeah, I'm on the same exact page with you. I mean, we could debate the Trey Turner trade till the cows come home. But if they get a franchise catcher out of this, even removing the Josiah Gray factor for a second, that's as good of a win as you can get. And we're going to find that out. And yeah, you mentioned JT or Real Muto. I mean, Buster Posey and Yadi Molina are still two of the best catchers. I mean, just because there's so few people that can replace them. Look at Salvador Perez in Kansas City. He's still a top five catcher, if not playing the best of his career. So it's kind of uncharted waters for Nats fans to have a franchise catcher. So I think that that possibility that starts on Monday night is very exciting.
0: Yeah, and it's all relative with catchers too, because like or Molina, everybody loves. But if you look at his batting numbers for years, they're not that good. Like he's considered valuable because of his experience and his game calling and some of the things he brings to the plate defensively. But He's not a great hitter. Like even JT Realmuto, he's a good hitter, but he's a great hitter for a catcher. He's not a great hitter in comparison to the other great hitters in baseball. He's just, because there are so few good hitting catchers, we look at him in a certain way. But if you compare him to like, you know, the Mike Trouts and like the Juan Sotos, like the really elite hitters in the sport, he's not close to those guys. So again, it's the position, like it's just For whatever reason, there aren't many good catchers anymore, like all-around catchers, guys who can hit well, field well, et cetera. We'll see with Cabo Ruiz, right? We don't know. But if what he's done in the minors is any indication, this could be something really special, what they have here. And like we said, a franchise that has not been good over the years at developing catching for whatever reason, now all of a sudden has Two guys, maybe three guys, who you can feel pretty good about And We've seen some good stuff from Adams and Barrera, and hopefully we're about to see some good stuff from Caber Ruiz. I mean, it's amazing to me, Tim, because this season, it's been such a bad season in so many ways. You know, it's been an ugly season. We've had some bizarre things happen. But like you said, this could end up being a good final month, you know, a September to remember if you're a Nats fan in terms of gray And Ruiz, and we'll see what guys like Lane Thomas and Riley Adams continue to provide. Who knows who else maybe ends up rising to the occasion. But there's a real opportunity here for this season to end up ending in a way that is very different and a lot better than what the initial five months of the season were.
1: Yeah, every month sort of has its own tale, and you could break down each month of this season. And and August has sort of been a little sleepy, but it's been better the last few weeks. And July was just a disaster. We (laughs) go back and listen to the old episodes, just if you want to, just look at the titles of the July episodes for the Natch Chat podcast, and you'll see. But I'm really excited here because they're going to be playing. You know, Philly and the Mets are still trying. They got three games against the Braves later this month. They play against Cincinnati, who's going to be trying the last weekend of the season. First off, could be a Zim retirement weekend, could be a welcome back, Kyle Schwarber, thank you for June weekend, but also Boston might be playing for a playoff berth. So the Nats are going to be playing some very critical games in terms of Major League Baseball this month, and I'm really happy that Ruiz is going to be along for the ride.
0: Yeah, so exciting news from the Nationals on Sunday. It's funny. You never know, man. It feels like Sunday is the day on which the Nats do a lot of transactional stuff. I don't, I don't know if the uh, data backs that up, but it feels like Sunday is like a popular day to execute roster moves. And on this Sunday, it wasn't so much that the Nats executed a move. It was that the Nats announced a move, and it was a big move. And it's a move that got a lot of attention, and it's a move that's going to generate a lot of excitement.
2: One zero from Martens swings and it's a fly ball to center field. Myers at the wall, jumping at the wall and it's gone a hat trick. Caybert Ruiz with his third home run tonight.
1: His fourth extra
2: base hit of the night. The first career three-homer game
0: for Caybert Ruiz and it's 13 to 3
2: Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot...
2: with a 96-mile-an-hour fastball. And it's a 1-2-3 inning
0: for Ryder Heath Embry to close it out. And the Mets win the final two games of the series. The Nationals uh, do lose two or three at the Mets over the weekend. They fall on Sunday in the finale of the series. 9-4 ends up being the final. And a few things jump out from this game. While we are talking, though, positional players, something that continues to go along here is that Victor Robles is no longer the Nationals' everyday starting center fielder. Like, we've gone from Victor having the sniffles and not playing for a few games to then, well, we're going to get more of a look-see at Lane Thomas, to now, Tim, I don't know about you, I think we're almost at the point where we say Victor Robles is not the Nats' everyday center fielder anymore. Now, I guess let's see how Davey handles this in this next series against the Phillies but here we are now. Lane Thomas ended up being the national starting center fielder and number one batter in each of the final two games in this series. Lane Thomas started all three games in the series. He was an ad starting left fielder and number six batter on Friday night. Victor Roble started one game in the series. That's it. It was that game one win, 2-1 on Friday night. He went 0-3 with three strikeouts, had a hit by pitch. We all know the story with Victor this season. He's been terrible as a batter. And it just seems like this could be it. Like for all of the talk that we had about, hey, final two months of the season, just put Victor out there and give him a shot. And I still would advocate for the Nats doing that. That ends up not even lasting a full month into this post-sell-off era for the Nationals. It seems like Davey Martinez, as he did with Victor earlier this season as a leadoff batter, has already pulled the plug in this uh, latter portion of the season in terms of Victor as the every game center fielder and leadoff batter.
1: I would characterize the center field position right now as this. It's very clear that Davy Martinez hopes that he feels that Lane Thomas is his everyday leadoff hitting center fielder. That, to me, is, is how I would handicap it right now. I still, though, Al, I really want them to play Robles more and more. I know he's having a terrible year at the plate, but he still has the glove. And if he hits 250 and 260, I don't care how he's doing at the plate. And so, you know, obviously we've enjoyed Lane Thomas getting on base and the, the legend and lore of this Lester trade. But I really hope in this homestand there's more Robles opportunities, as you mentioned, because I wouldn't want to give up on him. And then you're in a position where you got to maybe trade him in the offseason where he's, he's a devalued asset right now because of how he did this year. So I really hope that there's a, a reversal of thinking on this.
0: I do too. I've been hoping for it throughout the year. And again, it's not that Victor's been great this season. He hasn't. But you got to figure out what he is. And maybe the Nats feel like they've already figured it out. But I don't know how anyone can have any faith that Victor Robles is going to be in that lineup on anything close to a game-in, game-out basis down the stretch. I mean, actions speak louder than words in sports. Davey Martinez's actions this season scream that he is not wanting to have Victor Robles as the Nats every game center fielder, or at the very least as the every-game leadoff batter. I mean, we saw Victor play a lot as the every-game center fielder, but remember, he was the leadoff batter. I think it was like eight games into the season, Davey pulled the plug. Then it was buried in the number eight spot. Then it was, for a while, buried in the number nine spot behind the pitcher. Remember that whole deal that we talked about? And, you know, now it's like, well, they got this guy, Lane Thomas, and like we've said, Lane Thomas has done well, although he did not do well on Sunday, 0 for 5 with four strikeouts. Davey does have that penchant for kind of chasing the previous day's box score, so that's why I do kind of wonder if maybe we see Robles back out there as a starting center fielder, and number one batter for game one against the Phillies uh, Monday night. But yeah, man, I mean, I don't think you can ignore it at this point. Like, I don't know what they're thinking internally, like is Lane Thomas the everyday center fielder or not, but they're not playing Robles on anything close to an everyday basis. It's going on for a week plus now. And uh, that's kind of where we're at. So, it's just funny to me because this is, this is like the perfect opportunity to say, Victor, put up or shut up. You're out there every game the rest of the season. And they can't even make it through August doing that with Victor. Like That, to me, tells you at the very least how Davey is thinking about Victor. He just doesn't want to put him out there every game. He doesn't trust him.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just been so clear, as you said, since, since April. And uh, I'll do a segue for you here, if you, if you will allow me. They're playing keyboom every day. They're sinking or swimming with keyboom even though a lot of time they're sinking. So I just wonder why they're not doing the same with Robles because center field is even more important than third base. So I don't understand why they're screwing around with center field, but then they're like, Key boom, we trust you till October 2nd, and we'll figure out from there. That's the part I don't understand.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess their response would be, well, Carter at least has been halfway decent offensively these last few weeks, which is true. But yeah, like if you're giving him the sink or swim treatment, I don't see why you can't be doing that with Robles. Now, Carter Keyboom did not have a good series over these three games at the Mets. He was the net starting third baseman in all three games, but he went 0 for 11 with a walk and five strikeouts you know, it's a bad series. It's a little concerning just because that's the Carter Kibu we came to know prior to this most recent stint at the major league level. But again, keep him out there. You know, let's see if that's just a bad series or if that, you know, portends for more struggles to come. The other guy, though, who is struggling, and and this is more pronounced, but it doesn't get nearly as much attention, is Luis Garcia. Now, Luis Garcia was a hero in the 2-1 win on Friday night. He had a double in that game, in the top of the ninth, he had the great defensive play. Uh, you could argue, plays in the bottom of the ninth inning of that game. But Luis Garcia in the 5 3 loss at the Mets on Saturday night, 0 for 3 with a walk. And Luis in this 9 4 loss on Sunday afternoon, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Luis Garcia has 128 major league plate appearances for the Nats this season. He's got an OPS of 6 8. You know, for all the Roble stuff and the stuff regarding other people, Luis Garcia's OPS at the major league level this season is a puny 628. Not good. And, you know, with Luis, I know he was a pretty well-regarded prospect, but the point I was trying to make with him, and I think it's important to remember, is he was a pretty well-regarded prospect by national standards. He, over the last year or so, he wasn't like some top 100 prospect or anything like that. He's a guy who in the Nationals organization was considered someone who could maybe be a piece. But, you know, it's never been with him like this is a guaranteed guy. This is not a Caber Ruiz situation with Luis Garcia. And so my point is, it was already kind of iffy whether he would be a very good Major League batter. He's having struggles so far.
1: Yeah, I am growing concerned as to whether or not he's an everyday Major Leaguer. I think he is a Major League player, but does that mean he's a starter at second base? Uh, a lot more needs to be shown. And, and I'm glad that you reiterated that point that, you know, now it seems like forever ago. But earlier this year, when the Nats farm system, when he and Keeban were the top guys before the sell off, and a lot of people and myself included were asking to bring Garcia up, bring Garcia up, help the offense, you and Mark would remind, yeah, he's the biggest prospect in the Nats system, but what does that mean at the moment in time? And we're seeing that right now. And I haven't been particularly impressed with his glove. Friday night, kind of aside, and I have some concerns at the plate. So I think it's right to sink or swim with him for the final month, Al. But right now, I think second base is still TBA for opening day 2022.
0: Yeah. I mean, and maybe Luis Garcia is a nice backup, or maybe he is the national second baseman for the next 10 years. Like, we don't know. But the early returns offensively are not very good. And You know, it's not just what he's done these last few weeks. It's also, remember, he was called up and sent back down a bunch of times over the last year or so. Like, this was never a thing where they would call him up and say, okay, you're our guy now. This was, okay, we need you for a few games. All right, now go back down. Well, we need you for a few more games. Okay, now go back down. And I thought that was kind of telling of it. You know, they weren't in a rush to have him at the major league level. I mentioned Luis having a 608 OPS on the season. For comparison's sake, Victor Robles has a 607 OPS. on the season. So like Garcia has been Robles. Like that's what Luis Garcia has been. Like we said, keep him out there every game. But, you know, we're tracking these guys as time goes on here. And uh, that's what you're getting here so far from Luis Garcia as an ads everyday second baseman. Uh, in terms of some other things that stood out from this game on Sunday. So Eric Fetty was the Nationals starting pitcher. And this was back to being a disappointing Eric Fetty who we saw. And We've been through this with Patrick Corbin, where he had the very nice outing two starts ago, and then he gets shellacked in his most recent outing, and we go through this with Eric Fetty. So Eric Fetty was coming off one of his better outings over the last few months. He, in that uh, 5-1 win at the Miami Marlins last Tuesday night, had one run in six into third innings, 10 strikeouts. You loved what you saw, but the question we asked after that game was, okay, Fetty was good, but the Marlins are a terrible hitting team. So how much of that was Fetty versus how much of that was the opposition. Well, Eric Fetty in this 9-4 loss at the Mets on Sunday afternoon was back to having issues. Six runs, five earned in five and a third innings. He gave up eight hits, a homer, a triple, and six singles. He did have six strikeouts versus one walk, but he also issued two hit-by-pitches and a run-scoring balk. And
2: Fetty just balked. Oh, no. Lindor caught him, and that's the Nationals' defense. Yet
0: had way off the line, And so Lindor takes a big lead off third with no risk of being picked off, and Fetty flinched. He threw 99 pitches over the five and a third innings. He gave up a run in the bottom of the first on a seven-pitch walk of Brandon Demo, a two-out first-pitch single by Pete Alonso, a two-out pass ball by Tres Barrera, which is not doing him any service there, and then a two-out run-scoring balk. Fetty allowed two runs in the bottom of the fourth on a lead-off single, by Pete Alonso, and a one-out two-run homer by Javier Baez. Fetty allowed a run in the bottom of the fifth on a lead-off first pitch triple by Jonathan Villar, a hit-by-pitch of Brandon Nemo, a one-out RBI single by Pete Alonso, and then Fetty gets charged with two runs in that Mets, three-run six, gave up a lead-off single to Kevin Pillar, had him down to the count at 1.12, gave up a one-out pinch RBI single to Dominic Smith. So this was not an outing, Tim, in which you know Fetty was like, Bad initially, but then great or good initially, and then just one bad inning. This was an outing in which he put on a lot of guys on base, gave up a bunch of runs, and this ends up being another one of these lackluster outings. Again, six runs, five earned, and just five and a third innings.
1: Al, I would like your opinion on this. I think I might have figured out what Eric Fetty is, or the shortlist options for what Eric Fetty is as a major league pitcher. He is either a fourth starter or a fifth starter, and today we saw fifth starter Fetty. On Tuesday night in Miami, we saw fourth starter Fetty. We know, especially you look at, like, Anibal Sanchez's performance in the second half of 2019, the difference between a fourth starter and a fifth starter could be a huge delta in between those two. I think he is somewhere in between that, and my hope is that for next year they can count on him as the fourth starter, and if they have him as the fifth starter, then they're in a decent spot. If Gray and Cavalli and, and they get some injury luck with pitchers, But I think that's where we're at, where I think, Al, it's just the meter's going to go back and forth between fourth and fifth starter, and he's someone you can never count on in the front line of the rotation, but he's better than a Sean Nolan, or we love him, a Paolo Espino, as your fourth or fifth guy. Would you agree with that
0: take? Uh, I will be honest with you. I'm not even sure you can say that. He's definitely not an ace. Uh, I think think we learned that long ago. You know, earlier this season, he was pitching like, say, a number three starter, but that ship has sailed since then. Here's the deal with Fetty now. 22 starts this season. He has an ERA of 508. If you look at this thing from 30,000 feet, he has thrown 302 major league innings. He, in his major league career, has an ERA of 510. I mean, you could argue he's not a pitcher in a rotation, period. Now, we know these days in baseball, there are plenty of number five starters with ERAs in the five. So, yeah, like by that standard, he could be a number five starter. But in a good rotation on a playoff contender, you're trying to do better than an ERA of five. And the sample size is growing now. Again, 302 Major League innings in his career. Now, does that mean that this is who he is in perpetuity? Not necessarily But in a season in which he has thrown more innings than ever before, in a season in which a rotation spot has been his to have for a while now, I know initially this season there was a thing of, is he going to stay in the rotation and things like that? But for a while, it's been crystal clear, a spot in the rotation is Eric Fetty's to have. And I find this funny, and maybe this is just coincidence, or maybe this is like psychological, but it's interesting to me, when a spot in the rotation was not his to have, he was pitching really well. Now that a rotation spot is his to have, he's struggling. He's been struggling for a while now. Basically, since he came off the 10-day injured list, which he was on with the left oblique thing, he's been a bad pitcher. His ERA since then is over six. Like, his season has really fallen off, and it's disappointing to me. It's really disappointing. Like, nothing's more disappointing than Patrick Corbin this season, but especially now that it's like, okay, the thing that You could argue, like, Eric Fetty has always needed a spot in the rotation. Like, no more of this stuff, Are you a reliever or you a starter. Like, it's right there for you, pal. The red carpet is there. All you got to do is walk down the aisle, and you're a full-fledged certified member of the Nats rotation. And he's not doing it. So, like, when it comes to next season, it may well be that he's a part of the rotation just because the Nats don't have many other options. But when I look at this guy, like if just being objective, I see an ERA over five. I see wild inconsistency. I see someone who, yes, at times can be a strikeout pitcher, but other times isn't. And he's just not very reliable.
1: I have no pushback to anything you said, except I do want to circle on the part you talk about swing and miss stuff. He did reach a 100K plateau for the season today, right after he pitched 105 innings. I do find that a slightly significant stat, the fact that he can strike guys out, and it's kind of come in bunches, right? There's been games he struck out 10 or 7, and there's been other games where he's just gotten lit up and he only struck out 2. But that's the one thing, Al, that gives me a little bit of hope for the future, that he maybe could be that 4th starter or a very reliable 5th starter in a strong rotation because he can strike guys out.
0: Yeah. And to your point, he's averaging 8.58 strikeouts per nine innings, which is a big jump from where he had been at over the previous two years. So that's the thing. He does things that make you say, "Okay, there is talent here. Like he is a talented guy. There's a reason he was a first round pick. But that's the thing. He was a first round pick in 2014. And it's like, okay, at some point, you got to start delivering on that. And I know not everyone is Steven Strasburg, you know, a first-round pick who gives you almost instant dividends. But more and more, you have to wonder, is this guy Ross Detweiler, a first-round pick who just doesn't pan out as a major league starter? And maybe he's just not equipped to be a good major league starter. We'll see. I mean, again, keep putting him out there, all right? Let's give him more opportunity. But I find it really aggravating with him that you know there's talent and you know he can be good And then when you see something like you saw on Tuesday night and you try to give him the benefit of the doubt, you try to say, well, he pitched pretty well, even though, yeah, the Marlins aren't very good. And then something like this happens on Sunday. You're like, well, yeah, you know what? Tuesday night probably was more about the Marlins than it was about Eric Fetty.
1: When you say 2014, to put it in perspective, was RG3 still the starting quarterback then?
0: I mean, is that how long ago we're talking about here? That was his third season. That was Jay Gruden's first season as head coach. I mean, that's a long time ago, 2014. And I know some pitchers take a while, but, you know, Eric Fetty was not a high school pitcher. Eric Fetty was a college pitcher taken in 2014. It's 2021. At some point, you got to step forward, okay? At some point, like, nobody wants to hear anymore about you've been a starter and a reliever and you've dealt with this, you've dealt with that. Like, at some point, man, just get outs. Just be a reliable member of your team's rotation And it's not happening this season. And I hope it does. I'm rooting for the guy. But it just isn't happening. And Sunday was a reminder of that. A few other things. So the Nats bullpen, Tim. There are some games in which the bullpen is good. Like we saw that on Friday night. But the bullpen was a big problem in the 5-3 loss on Saturday night. And the bullpen was again a problem in this game on Sunday afternoon. Three Nats relievers combined to allow three runs in two and two-thirds innings. Kyle McGowan comes into the game. Runner on first, one out. Nats down 5-3, bottom of the six. On the first pitch he throws, he gives up a first-pitch two-run homer to Jonathan Villar for a 7-3 Mets lead. Mason Thompson did a similar thing on Saturday night. Comes into the game, first pitch he throws, gives up a pinch one-out three-run homer to Michael Conforto for a 5-3 Mets lead. On Sunday, the Nats were already down 5-3. McGowan comes into the game, first pitch he throws Villar takes McGowan deep, and then McGowan issues a one-out five-pitch walk of Brandon Nimmo before getting the final two outs in that inning. Austin Voth did toss a perfect bottom of the seven, so that was good to see. But then Sam Clay, who had been better lately, was back to being, well, Sam Clay. Uh, he gave up two runs in the bottom of the eighth, lead-off four-pitch walk of Patrick Mazika, one-out single by Jonathan Villar on an 0-2 pitch, a one-out hit-by-pitch of Brandon Nimmo, and a one-out two-run double by Francisco Lindor, you can tell by going through these plate appearance by plate appearance descriptions. It's not just the hits that are given up. It's the walks. It's the hit by pitches. The relievers come into games and they just don't have the location down. Like sometimes they do, right? But too often it's you, know, you give up a walk, you hit a batter, you can't throw strikes, you're out of rhythm. And we obviously saw that with multiple guys on Sunday.
1: I hang this series loss in terms of the bullpen's performance on Corbin dating back to Thursday night, he put the bullpen in a terrible spot where they had to basically fill the entire game on Thursday night before taking a a red eye flight that landed at 3 a.m. So the bullpen was already tired entering the three game series in which you had the Espino Nolan turn on the rotation, which already is a bit of an obstacle there. And then they come in with Fetty. Fetty shouldn't have pitched the sixth inning. He was at what 89 pitches after five. It was clear. He was probably done. It was a four, three game, but it was hard to imagine how David Martinez was going to get 12 more outs from his beat-up pen. Side note, I don't know why he had McGowan warm up in the eighth inning on Saturday night. I thought that was a mistake on his end. He wasn't planning on bringing him in the game. So McGowan wasn't as fresh as he should have been. So I'm not blaming David Martinez for the fact that he's not playing with the full deck. But I just, you know, as a reminder that in baseball, every day matters and it all adds up and accumulates And I really thought Corbin put them in a terrible spot on Thursday night. They were wobbly before they even entered Flushing on Friday.
0: Yeah, and and that's a good point. It's something we should remember. And that is, okay. you have this Nationals bullpen, which isn't great to begin with. You trade away two key guys in the bullpen and Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand. And the bullpen has really been overworked throughout the season because the rotation hasn't been good for basically the entire season and so there is a domino effect, there is a cumulative effect of all of this to where now here you are deep into the season, all these young arms, these inexperienced arms, and series in and series out, it's, you know, your starters go five innings, five and a third, maybe six, you know, we do cartwheels if anyone lasts beyond six innings. What we'll never know is would any of these guys been appreciably better this season if the Nats rotation had been better, if these pitchers had gone deeper into games. And I don't think it's that far of a stretch to say, yeah, probably, you know, that a lot has been asked of a bullpen that isn't up to the task, but you have to say, well, why was so much being asked of this bullpen? The ro- You know, this is supposed to be a rotation leading team, right? That Like the, the success of the Nats is predicated on the rotation. And as we know, that's been one of the big storylines this season, just this complete collapse of the Nationals rotation. By the way, this series did have a chance to be that rarity that is a national series in which the starting pitcher in each game does well, or at least reasonably well. We saw Paolo Espino do well game one, Sean Nolan do well game two. I mean, it's all relative, we'll grant you that. But you had a shot for that on Sunday in game three, and uh, unfortunately, you don't get that. A few other items from this game, from this series. So Josh Bell uh, does have a good series and does have a really good game on Sunday afternoon. Do want to give him credit for that. So Bell is in that starting first baseman and cleanup batter. In all three games in the series, he ends up going five for 12 with two homers and three singles and Bell on Sunday hit two homers. Top of the fourth, a one-out first pitch opposite field two-run homer to left center field. The homer going a projected 424 feet per stat cast. Top of the eighth, Bell, a two-out full count opposite field solo homer to left field. There weren't many Nats in this series who had very good series. Alcides Escobar was good over the first two games, didn't do much in game three. Uh, Juan Soto was good in game three. He hit a home run on Sunday. We'll get to that. But, you know, beyond those guys, not much happening offensively. It was good to see Josh Bell. And, you know, we'll see where he's at beyond this season. The Nats have him under contract for one more year. I think next year will be interesting to see what kind of a year you get from Josh Bell. But I think like if you're making a list now of the positives of this Nats season, we all know it didn't get off to a good start. But I do think it's fair to say that Josh Bell has been an overall positive for the Nats this year.
1: Okay. I'm glad you brought up Bell. I have a question for you that I was thinking about the other day because Bell is under contract for one more year and he's a guy who has 23 homers. He can hit 30 homers. I know we've beaten up on Bell a lot this year, but he's a 30 homer guy. What could they get in the offseason? What's the trade market for a Josh Bell for a team that is set on pitching or feels they're set on pitching, but feels that they're a bat short from contending? What could Mike Rizzo get for him?
0: I don't think it's that much, and the reason I say that is twofold. A, the Nats didn't give up that much to get him, and so if you didn't give up that much to get him with two years left of team control, why would you get appreciably more with one year left of team control? Now, I know the Nats did buy low on Josh Bell, but I have a hard time seeing them getting back like a blue-chip prospect for him. The other thing is the trade market, the free agent market for power-hitting first basemen it's just not that good. And it hasn't been good for a while now. I mean, the good thing about Bell this year is that he has proven himself to be capable defensively. There were obvious questions about that coming into the season. He's overall, I think, done a pretty nice job defensively this season. Has some issues on throws, but otherwise, I think he's done a pretty good job defensively. But I don't think it would be that high. I almost would say you're better off seeing how next season goes. If you really don't have designs on keeping Bell beyond next year, I think what you hope for if you're the Nats and you're not contending next year is that Bell gets off to a torrid start, and maybe you can trade a midseason to a team that's in dire need of a bat. But guys like Bell, they're not as valued as they used to be in baseball.
1: Ten years ago, Josh Bell, I think, would have gotten you a starting pitcher, but, but that's just not the case anymore because I'm thinking, just keep him for a second. I don't think he was an everyday third baseman. I've made my decision. I'll let the Nats do another 30 games. We've talked about Riley Adams and the glutton catcher. Like you have two guys right there who might be worth playing first base next year. And I just wonder if bell is a little bit extraneous at first
0: base for 2022. He might be again, a lot of it's going to depend on what the Nats are trying to do in 2022, because I'm one of these people who thinks the Nats could be trying to win in 2022. I don't Same. think it's a fate fait lead that the Nats are just going to tap out on 2022. And so if they're trying to win, and you've got Josh Bell under team control and you maybe want to keep him beyond next year. I don't think that's a ludicrous statement. Then, you know, I would say go ahead and bring him back. He can be your normal first baseman with maybe like Riley Adams spelling him at times next year and uh, go for it that way. But, yeah, I just I don't think a guy like that has a lot of a lot of value on it on the trade market these days. Teams have smartened up like if you're kind of a one dimensional player, which Josh Bell kind of is, you know, not totally, but kind of is. You're not going to bring back too much for your team. Mentioned Juan Soto. He did homer on Sunday. We should note that because this is not a guy who gets many pitches to hit these days. And so when he takes advantage of those pitches, we want to give the guy credit for that. Uh, but seeing Soto, first of all, work two more walks, hit the home run, top of the six, a leadoff opposite field homer to left center field, despite having been down to the count at 1.02. The homer going a projected 401 feet per stat cast. Always nice to see that. And, you know, I thought it was interesting, Tim, because... The whole concept of lineup protection, I I think, can be kind of dubious. And people lean on it, I think, way too often. But that doesn't mean that it never exists. And here you had Soto homering not long after Josh Bell homered. And I do think there's something to the idea of because Bell homered earlier in the game, that perhaps made it more likely for Soto to get a pitch or two to hit in that plate appearance. And sure enough, he delivered in that plate appearance with a home run. So For those who are saying, well, does protection really exist? Not always, but that doesn't mean that it never exists. And I thought that was actually an example of perhaps like protection being manifested and how because Bell homered earlier in the game, that maybe led to Soto homering later in the game.
1: Yeah, I think protection is really important. And maybe not in innings one and three, but I think so late. Just like a quarterback, you need proper protection, I think, for a star hitter you always need proper protection. I think it's you have to handcuff him. And Bill has been that good protection. I think it's a really good point that you bring up and you really focus in on it. Is that why he had a home run today? I'm not sure. But the Mets did feel that they could pitch to Soto or had to pitch to Soto and that, for very briefly, changed the game a little bit. Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer,
2: play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Jordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit frednats.com for ticket information and follow us on social media at
0: FXBGNats for the latest updates. All right, you can always email us at the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Robert Krakower emailed us. He writes the following regarding the designated hitter and the potential, of course, for a universal DH next season. We'll see if that ends up happening. Writes Robert, baseball should simply have an eight-man batting order. At least in that case, the number of halfway, parentheses, or fake as I see them, baseball players will be minimized I do not want to hear the argument that lineups need to have nine hitters as if all of a sudden the purity of the game is at stake. That ship is long gone. And if anyone gets to wield that argument, it is to those of us on the anti DH side. So he's not a fan of having the DH, but he's open to the notion of pitchers not hitting. I've thought about that. What do you think about that? The idea of just going to an eight man batting order, no more pitchers hitting, but no more DHs either. Everyone in a lineup has to also be playing the field. Would Commissioner Chauvers be in favor of that?
1: I'm really embarrassed. I've never thought of this before, this email question. I really, I'm really glad you, you're airing this because it, it perked my ears up when I saw it. So just a real quick background on me. I'm anti-DH, but I admit the ship has sailed. And at this point, just make it universal DH. Very, very selfishly, I covered a World Series in 2019 with the old rules. I got to see Garrett Cole hit. I'm good. Back to this question, though. I kind of like it. I never really liked the David Ortiz experience or the Diego Martinez experience where guys could just – or Harold Baines – where guys could just sit on the bench for a decade plus and never play the field. I've never been in favor of that. So this might be the perfect happy medium, Al. I think this emailer is on to something, and Commissioner Shovers hasn't made his official ruling yet. But uh, I'm going to chew on this more and more, and I might arrive at this uh, decision when I move into my new office on Park Avenue.
0: I don't think it's a bad idea. It's an idea, though, that will never – ever, ever happen because the Players Association would pitch a fit over this. And because of all of the acrimony right now between MLB and the MLBPA, I don't think you're going to see MLB put forth a proposal as radical as that one of, let's eliminate the DH and eliminate a bunch of jobs and uh, you know cost players a bunch of money like that. So it'll never happen. But in theory, it's not a bad idea. There's no law that says you have to have nine men batting in a lineup, like eight might make more sense, and it would allow for the best hitters in the game to bat more often, which is a good thing. And yeah, the DH role, and we talked about this in a recent installment of the podcast, it's changed. You know, the, the days of the David Ortizes and the Harold Baineses; those days really don't exist anymore. The DH now is used as a ninth spot in an order for a guy who isn't a great fielder. But a lot of American League teams rotate that DH spot. A lot of American League teams don't like to be locked into the DH spot to where you have to have this guy as your DH every game. It's like you use it as an extra spot. And uh, so it's, it's, it's changed in that way. But yeah, the DH means jobs, the DH means more money, and uh, the Players Association would go nuts if uh, the owners try to make that happen. The Players Association goes nuts if like the cereals available to players in the uh, in the clubhouse changes. okay. So you try to take away the DH, forget about it. It'll be like a full-scale riot uh, from the MOBPA. Anyway, uh, you tell us what you think. We're always up for some good baseball discussion. The more radical the theory, the more radical the concept, the better. We like to be outside-the-box thinkers on the Nats Chat Podcast. So if you have an idea, Send it along. Uh, You can email us, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us as well, at Nats underscore chat. So Monday night, big, big night. Game one of a three-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park. It is game one of an eight-game homestand. Because remember, after this three-game set against the Phillies, off day on Thursday, and then five games in four days against the Mets at Nationals Park, Labor Day weekend. Friday night, day-night doubleheader on Saturday, Sunday afternoon game, and then a Monday afternoon game, a Labor Day game. So that's going to be some stretch. I don't know about you, Tim. I'm sick and tired of seeing the Phillies and Mets, but we're sort of eating our vegetables now over this homestand. And Monday night, regardless of the opponent, is going to be a lot of fun. Josiah great pitching, Caper Ruiz making his Nats debut.
1: I have one quick thing on the Mets, and I'm so sick of the Mets and Phillies. Just think about this. At the end of July, the Mets were in first place, and the Nats had waved the white flag on the season. And I know that in August, the Mets have won five of six. But many of the games have been competitive, if not the fact that just the Nats don't have enough bullpen arms to get enough outs to secure these wins. We saw Sean Nolan pitch well. We saw Paul Espino pitch well. I'm just going to say this, Al. I think the gap between the Nats and Mets in late August isn't that much. I mean, just think about how much – how closer together these two teams are than they were just a month ago when one was a first-place team and one kicked the tires on the season. I think it shows you how much growth there has been in the last few weeks for this organization.
0: I would also say this, and I think this might be an interesting question to get some answers to. Next three years, who has a brighter future, the Nats or the Mets? I think you could actually argue the Nats, and that seems ridiculous given where we were a month ago. I don't think that's so ridiculous to say now. Now, it's not a slam dunk either way, but there are issues here with the Mets, and they are far from some lock to be great in future seasons. They've got an owner with you know limitless pockets. We understand that. And there's some real talent on the Mets. We understand that as well. But there are some real questions on the Mets, too. And the Nationals have a chance here, you know, depending on how these prospects do. But the Nationals have a chance here to be a team that all of a sudden is younger, more positionally versatile and is on the rise. We'll see. This is actually a pretty big month coming up here for the Nats. And uh, I think it's going to be a big offseason, too. We'll see. But keep the feedback coming. You tell us what you think. You can always get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.com dot square dot site. A reminder, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing so. Subscribing costs you nothing. And if you haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating and written like a one or two sentence review saying how much you like the pod, please consider doing that. Those things cost you nothing. Don't take long and uh, help out the podcast a lot. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Tim Schovers. I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we leave you now with a World Series memory via voice memo. This one coming to us from Jeff Marshall in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina.
3: Well, hey there. My name's Jeff Marshall from Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. I'm a faithful Nats Chat Podcast listener. And Special thanks to Mark and to Al for your great work on the podcast. Really enjoy it, especially over these past few weeks as we've had to endure the selling and trading off of so many of our favorite players. Uh, You've given us hope in looking to the future and uh, giving us good insight on rebuilding the farm. System and taking a look at all these new prospects and uh, how to correctly view these current games that are sometimes painful to watch or to listen to. So, thank you very much for that. But in terms of the 2019 World Series Championship season, I think one of my favorite memories was the series itself. And uh, I actually ended up missing the series more or less. Uh, most years I take a missions trip to a very remote region of northeast india uh, where it's very hard uh, to stay in tune with what's going on over here and back when we made our plans we booked our travel maybe six or eight months in advance and had no idea of course that the nationals would be in the world series that year and the games actually began while we were in india And the games would typically start about 5.30 in the morning, India time. And thanks to the MLB At-Bat app, I was able to catch maybe the first inning of each game. And uh, that was at least a help. Uh, There was no Nats Chat podcast during that time, so I was not able to get a recap of each game. Uh, I had to read the box score. But the final game, Game 7, actually started when we were in flight home, between New Delhi and Qatar. And I remember being frustrated that I could not get the game while I was in flight. We landed in Qatar. And as soon as we did, I turned on my phone, opened up the app. I think it was in the sixth inning. And if I recall, the Nationals were down two to nothing to the Astros. And I thought, well, at least we're in it. And uh, as we made our way through the airport terminal, I'm listening on my ear pods and was very encouraged with what was going. But we finally got to a point where we had to get through security. It was a critical point late in the game and I did not want to turn off the game. So I took a risk and put my phone with the app open on the conveyor belt to send through the metal detector and I kept my uh, earbud in my ear but I kind of turned my head so the guy standing there with the machine gun couldn't see me uh, and it actually worked I didn't miss a play going through security and soon afterwards as we're walking through the terminal uh, the game ends and we hear Charlie's famous swing and a miss swing and a miss swing and a miss And I'm just kind of going ecstatic in the terminal there. And I've got a lot of Middle Eastern people looking at me like I have some screws loose, but I really didn't care. They had no clue what was going on on the other side of the world. And uh, shortly after that, of course, Charlie gives his famous, remember where you are so you can remember where you were. And I certainly always will remember where I was when the Nationals won the World Series. Thanks so much, guys.
2: As Hudson tries to close it out, it'll be another 3-2 pitch to Michael Brantley. Hudson sets the kick in here it comes. Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! Swing and a miss! And a World Series Game 7 winning Curly W is in the books! The celebration is on! The Washington Nationals are the world champions! Remember where you are so you remember where you are right now at 1150 Eastern Time! Remember where you are on October 30th, 2019, when the Washington Nationals finish the fight.